You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. morning. All right, so our focal passage this morning is 1 Samuel, verses 1 through 20. It will be on the screen. Um, as well as you can turn in your Bibles. If for some reason you do not have a Bible, our church would love to give you one. Just come see uh, us at the Connect desk after the gathering. Okay. All right. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim on the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahom, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And, um, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, and I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and children can be dismissed at this time. Good morning. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. This is the true story 
of seven strangers picked to live in a house, work together, and have their lives taped to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. That's the intro to MTV's The Real World, a reality show that began in 1992 and lasted for 33 seasons. Some of you are like, I remember that. The series was hailed in its years for depicting issues of contemporary young adulthood uh, relevant to its core audience, such as sex, prejudice, religion, abortion, illness, sexuality, AIDS, death, politics, and substance abuse. I think it went off the rails a bit later, but that was the intent early on, I think. Uh, You may be not familiar with that show in particular, but you are probably familiar with the genre of show, uh, reality TV in all of its forms, real and not so real. Uh, There are comedy shows and cooking shows and home buying shows and renovating shows, and there are reality magic shows and survival shows and, and travel and romance and lust and love competition and deception. There are sociological shows, medical shows, singing and entertainment, fashion and finance. Like if it's a passion for someone on the earth, there's probably a reality television show about it. What you may not know is reality TV actually started much earlier than the real world in 1992. Like much, much earlier than that. Guinness, that book that tells us about all the records, they they say that uh, Candid Camera is the first reality TV show, and that show was spun off of a radio show from 1947, where they would have hidden microphones, and and later on, like, it it was so popular that they, they swapped out those hidden microphones for hidden cameras, and there we have, you know, reality TV, right, and all of its glory and shame, right? Uh, But reality TV shows don't get renewed for 33 seasons because people just tune in to watch people sit on their couch and watch TV. No shade to your life, right? Um, Or my own. But because they actually connect to the real world. Now, people may tune in to escape from their own life, but the reality is there's something appealing about bringing the chaos of, of your own life to the theater of your own screen. And, and, and so what we get to do is we get to see the chaos unfold with popcorn instead of Prozac. And there's something about that, uh, it, that, that we get to be close enough to enjoy it or not without any of the personal consequences of enduring the difficult times, like misery loves company. There's a theological reality that, that says that none are good, right? This is kind of the baseline of scripture. You're not, nor is anyone else good. And certainly that is like, no one can barge into the throne room of God and demand anything. No one can stand before God without being, you know, like evaporated by his holy glory Right Next to the righteousness of God, there is not one even close. And so there's nothing we can do to, to earn ourselves or, or to jockey a position 
before God. But at the same time, that reality can, can bring about like a somewhat cynical view of the world. But, but on the flip of that, like all humans that you interact with are not terrible humans. They might just be uh, in rebellion against the Lord. And, and so that's, that's nothing to like smirk at. That's a big deal. But, but it, it's like the difference between uh, some say total depravity that, that every part of creation and every part of humanity is stained with sin. It's marred by sin. It's, it's jaded. It's broken. It's fractured by sin. But, but it's not utterly depraved. It's not as bad as it could be because of God's grace into all, his common grace into all of the common places of our life. But we have this in common with reality TV and certainly with our neighbor next door. It's, it's two realities, that we are all sinners and we are all sufferers. And if you've never began a relationship with Jesus, that is a great place to start your journey with him. Understanding that the world that we live in has two truths in it, that, that you are a sinner and you are a sufferer and you're in good company with, with everyone else in this room and everyone else that you meet on the street. We are sinners and sufferers and that's the great equalizer. That is, that is a beauty that we get to hang on to. The great place also for us to begin a journey through a huge historical book of the Bible. And it's the beginning of the kingdom of Israel on earth. And this is in the Old Testament, and there's a lot in this. I remember years ago, like, like a decade plus ago, we went through the Gospel of Mark, and I remember Ryan McClure talking about, like, you know, he sets his Bible down, and it just, like, opens up to the book of Mark. And I, my hope is that in a year from now, maybe your Bible might just open up to, to 1 Samuel as we journey together for, I don't know, 50 weeks or something like that. Um, the big idea is this. Each story of suffering is a window into the bigger story of God's work. To be clear, the narrative of 1 Samuel begins in the 11th century BC. And I say the narrative because there are different types of literature bound together in the scriptures, and some of it is, is letters to churches, and some of it's uh, literary uh, poem, some of it's wisdom, it's kind of like how you should live your life. And what we see in, in this is it's, it's telling an account of, it's an unfolding story. And so, so it's just telling us a story, and in that we will find ourselves discovering things, and, and some of it is, is uh, it, it's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell us how to live, per se, it describes how these people lived with the Lord. That's pretty important, and, and it will be pretty important pretty quickly. So the focus of 1 Samuel is it's kind of this turbulent, tumultuous relationship between a guy named Saul and David. Those are the first two kings, but, but we're not there yet. It was written by Samuel partially. We'll meet him even today for a second, but he couldn't have written all of it because he dies before the end, <laughs> Right? Uh, and so that's kind of important to, to know. Uh, there's, there's a first Samuel, there is a second Samuel, followed by a first Kings and a second Kings. And some, like the Greek mashup of the books of the Bible, actually put all four of those together, and they are the, the first through the fourth Kings, which makes a whole lot of sense, right? Um, really, it's the story of Samuel and Saul, not the one who would be called Paul later, he's in the New Testament. But this is another guy, and David, who maybe you've heard like a story about, right? King David. 
So, so God's people are rescued from Egypt and, and delivered mightily from Pharaoh and all those things. And, and, and then they're brought into a covenant community. And God says, hey, this is the way that we get to live together. This is how we get to do this. This is the best way to love me and to love one another. This is what it looks like. And, and eventually he brings them into the promised land, the land that he had promised to them to, to live faithful, to live out that covenant community. And like, like you might imagine in your own life or any of the television shows that you may have seen in your life, like it just doesn't go very well. It doesn't go very well and it doesn't take long for that. And so what we see in, again, kind of like the, the way the Bible is put together, we see this, this book called Judges. And in the Judges, it's just chaos. It's, abs- it's an absolute disaster of humanity. And, and notably, it, it, we, we have this kind of famous line that says, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And that's just not good. <laughs> that, that's, just, that's just never good. And so Israel failed big time. And then there, there's moral chaos. And, and, and that revealed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. And, and Samuel gives us some of that, right? Um, but it does not begin there. There are no kings in this chapter that we're looking at today. Uh, it zooms way in on the life of a woman named Hannah. And quickly, we realize that, that we're in good company with Hannah because she too is a sufferer, like in some really hard ways. And, and maybe we're in good company with, with her husband's wife, you see why I began by talking about reality TV, right? Maybe we're in good company with her husband's wife, uh, Panina or Penina or Penny or whatever you want to call her, uh, Panina, but be, because she is certainly a sinner. And so we will find ourselves in good company. And the first thing that, that we see from this is this truth that life brings suffering. No amens from that? Yeah. As sure as the sun rises, there is suffering on earth. I don't have to do this because I know that you know that to be true, but, but some ways that that shows up, physical pain, cancer, traumatic experiences of all types, financial ruin, false accusation, violence, disabilities, social difficulty, people get bullied and picked on, people find themselves lonely, uh, depression, anxiety of all types, the cards that you've been dealt and, and the lot that, that you've drawn to live, and, and sometimes that's full of temporary stings, and sometimes it's lifelong tragedies. The daily grind of life in a fallen world just feels hard there's dissatisfaction and there's unrealized hopes and there's untimely loss. And, and, and that's all true as we take in the news from around the world and it's also true when we take in the news from our own social feed among our friends. All of life is not unbearable. But we've all experienced pieces that are unbearable in different measures. And while none of those things are fun or good or enjoyable, Right? And that's not the posture of my heart or of the, the heart of Scripture to just pacify or, or to just get through all of those moments. While, while that is not fun or good or enjoyable, it, it also shouldn't be a surprise. That's important. And, and I say that because, you know, uh, a thousand years later, ten centuries later from where we're looking at this, 
uh, Jesus will come and he will tell his people. And we get to read about it in scripture. They didn't have that, but we get to read when he says, in this life, there will be suffering. It's not like a question. He says, there, you will experience tribulation in this life. Things will be hard. He says that in John chapter 16. But, but long before Jesus said that, Hannah suffered. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're just going to read verses 1 through 10. Again, there was in the names, uh, you know, what are you going to do? There was a certain man named Rama, we'll call, of the hill uh, country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of uh, Jeratham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, it's a great name, and Aphrodite. He had two wives, First of all, you may be saying, man, I've never heard of any of these people. But I know, like, you probably read the Bible like I read the Bible. You always assume that the person next to you, they know all the stuff. And you're like, oh, this is the obvious connection with so-and-so. And and if you look back, if you, right, and that's good. That's good Bible study. No one knows who these people are, right? That's the point. They are quite insignificant, right? That's the point. So this guy Elkanah, he has two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Right? I told Rick it might not be riveting, it might be sad. And that's why he said that. Because already, ah, like I get it. Like you feel the weight of what's happening in this room, in these hearts, because it's happening in these rooms, in, in these hearts. But the tension is set pretty well. Panina had children, Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, who was the priest, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Again, we're, we're piecing together what's happening here, and, and there's just like a lot of unknown. When I say it's chaos, this is dark times in the people of God. And so all this stuff, it's, it's not crystal clear. You're not drawing just lines all over Scripture. You're like, I, we, it's kind of tough. Like, we don't really know. But it seems like there's a, a, a faithful uh, remnant of people who are trying to worship the Lord and doing that through sacrifice, going to the temple, etc., on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Panina, portions of that sacrifice, and then to her family. But Hannah, he gave a double portion, like literally the word is like two noses, which is kind of weird. But, but the idea is, is double portion of the sacrifice because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So here's your portion and, and Hannah, what? Here, let me give you some more. Which, she's probably like, stop it, right? Like, you're bringing public shame in some way, but he's not trying to do that. Guys, I tell you. But, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed the room. And her rival, that's Panina, gosh, it's like really stark imagery. That's not just a friendly word. Used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. They did this many times. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord and used, uh, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And so just imagine what's happening between the years when they're going there. Like what type of life? 
Like, we wish there were hidden cameras to capture those interactions. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? <laughs> like, guys are, are just idiots. <laughs> and again, that's a really good starting point for, for all of us. For real. And like, you, you, you're like empathetic towards him and he's like trying really hard and he's like I don't know what to do for my wife who's hurting it was customary culturally it seems to be that she was barren and that brought a load of shame and difficulty because she's not able to do the thing that they prized in their culture more than anything else which is reproduce and so a husband is common for a husband to take another wife at least to have children but he loved Hannah and he's Kind of an idiot, but like he's trying really hard or whatever. Um, and after they had eaten and, and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly. Life brings suffering, and like I'm not going to tease all this out. I can't, but it, I would be... I wouldn't be very aware if I didn't just say, well, why is there suffering? Right? Um, why is there suffering this world? Why are you experiencing it? Why did she experience it? And look, I can't do this in 45 seconds, but two reasons why. One, sin breaks stuff. It breaks everything. And every one of us are contributors to that. And every one of us are, are receivers of that. That's why I say we are sinners and we are sufferers. That means that, that our emotions, that means that our, our moral compass is out of whack. Remember we talked about last week or whatever, like, uh, like we, we can't follow our hearts because sin breaks stuff. It, it breaks our emotions, our, our, our mind, uh, the way that we think, the way that we process, the way that we worship. It breaks the physical world around us. And so why is there rivalry and mockery and abuse and suffering from the, the earliest age on up? Why? why? Why does that happen at the hand of others? Why is so much suffering at the hand of others? Well, it's because the characters of this world, they don't find their satisfaction in the only place that it can be found in our creator. And so you look at Panina who had, had a, a power dynamic where she had leverage, and who knows? But you can imagine a scenario in which Elkanah seemed to prefer Hannah, but she had the upper hand, and so she was going to spite her and make her feel terrible about her existence. Sin breaks stuff, it breaks everything, you contribute to that, and, and you receive that. The second thing is this, and I know this isn't robust enough, but, but God is surely at work. So why is there suffering? Well, it's because sin breaks stuff, and God is surely at work. He rebukes the proud. He confronts injustice. He directs hearts of kings as water in his hands. That's what he does. He judges wickedness, all of it. Like there's not, there's not one moment, one expression of wickedness that, that won't give account to the Lord. And he does that against the backdrop of sin and suffering. He forges forth his forever plans. Not without an eye on his creation, but with a watchful, heart-engaged, grace-fueled, mercy-soaked, unmatched love. 
See, when it comes to creating the world, ordering it, sustaining it, redeeming it, restoring it, there's a way that is the right way. And, and here's the reality. The thing that's impossible to grasp is the right way, it's not my way. And it's not your way. We have to submit to things that we just don't know because we are, gosh, specks of nothing in a vast expanse of all sorts of stuff that men and women have invested their entire lives for generations and generations to understand, and we know like this much of it. The world suffers not just on reality TV, but in reality, Hannah suffers, you and I suffer, our neighbors and our families suffer, this world suffers. So, so here's the question, and here's what we see in this text. What do we do about it? Well, the second thing is, is suffering demands response. Everyone responds to suffering. If we, if we read the Bible as mere examples of godliness, and, and, and we just look and we say, oh gosh, that is a person that's after God's heart, and they must really, they, they get it together. And, and man, they, they've done that, and so I, I have to do that, Right? Then, then one, we become one of two things. We become defeated in our despair because we are simply unable to just do good. We're simply unable to just follow the way. We are simply unable to just obey the word and the words of Jesus. We, we can't do that. In fact, one of the purposes of God's law is to show us that we are incapable of, of satisfying that law. We are not righteous in ourselves. None are good. So, so if we just look at the Bible and say there are moral examples and I want to be like her or like him, we either find ourselves defeated in despair because we just can't overcome, we just can't do it, or we find ourselves puffed with pride at our self-righteous comparison that gives us a moral W. Right? And so really, if you hone in on Hannah and her response, you'd be like, gosh, I want to be more like Hannah. Or you look at Panina and you say, at least I'm not as bad as her. <laughs> and, and if the Bible is merely that, but the Bible doesn't simply show moral examples and just say, you know, good luck, hope it works out okay. But it shows examples of disasters who fail and it shows us examples of, of those who show a heart turned towards the Lord and it shows us character arcs of redemption in between. When we discover the fullness of God through the fullness of Scripture, we find a God willing to not only show us how to live his way, a way that's, that's honoring and pleasing and good, but, but he gives us the power to live his way. And not only the power to live his way, but the desire to live his way. Not only the desire to live his way, but here's the thing, the joy to live his way, even when things are not going our way. He gives us joy to give him our entire lives. So when we see this woman, she is a, a model of dependence upon the Lord, it shouldn't cripple us. It shouldn't puff us up. It, it should 
inspire us to lean into the same Lord that she leans into. So let's continue reading verse 11 through 17. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Lots of stuff in there. Uh, really interesting. Uh, 40 minutes in the Old Testament, Chad Bird and some other guy, Daniel something or other, I think. Um, gosh, really helpful. Just kind of commentary. It's a podcast that kind of walks through stuff. And, and he, uh, Chad Bird, super technical in Old Testament stuff, and he says there's very common vows. Vows are very common, certainly in the Old Testament, and it was always, uh, God, if A, then B. Like, if you give me A, then I will commit my life or whatever. And he said this is really unique because this is, if, if you give me A, then I will give you A, which is, it's, it's unique. It's not, if you give me a son, then gosh, then I will uh, give you half of my paycheck every single week. No, if you give me a son, then he's your son. And then, and then what she says is, is he will be devoted to you. Uh, it doesn't say this is like a Nazarite vow, but as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, it's basically her saying that then he will be committed to do all that he does. Like, I'll, I'll send him to sem- seminary and all the things, right? Like, he, he's yours. I will bring him back here, and I will give him to you, and we'll tease that out over the next couple weeks or whatever. But, and then she, she goes on. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. He's the priest. Uh, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Lots of things in there. You just think about it. What would be happening if someone was here and it's kind of quiet, whatever, and she's... Maybe she's praying prayers that she didn't want Panina to hear. She might not use those against her. She's like submitting unspoken requests, right? Or whatever she's doing, but she seems to be doing it in a heartfelt way that's, that's somewhat passionate. And I told you that guys are idiots, but then Eli shows up and, and Eli took her to be a drunken woman. That's what you would assume, right? Um, and, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Ugh. Put your wine away from you. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what's going on here. Yeah, do you want to ask questions or just make accusations, right? Um, she didn't say that. Um, that was my words. Um, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. It's like beer, I'm not, whatever. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. She's like, I've not taken in any drink. I've been pouring out my tears. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So, so she is experiencing suffering and it's happened for a long, long time, year after year. It's not just in a moment. And what does she do? She, she turns to the Lord. She says, remember me. And now when we see that, it's not that God ever forgot. He never forgets. But it's, but it's a prayer that we see prayed many times in scripture. 
And, and it's just the, the idea of, of remember me, like, Lord, would you act on my behalf? Or it's like we pray these prayers all the time, like, God, would you just be near to us, like, as if he's not near to us? God, remember me. Not that he's forgotten, but would you, would you act on my behalf? Right? We will respond to suffering. Just know that. You, you have you are, and you will respond to suffering. It's just, how are we responding? I had a conversation with Scott uh, just a couple of days ago, and, and he mentioned the idea of like sinning in suffering. And so that's one way that we respond, is that we sin in our suffering. And so how, might, uh, how could this have gone differently? You can throw that up there, um, Chad, I think. Um, how could this have gone differently? Well, uh, we're all sinners. Imagine you. What does your heart look like interacting with Panina or with Elkanah or with Eli? What do you do when you're just bro- you, you, your heart is just shattered? You're suffering deeply, and there's false accusation against you. Uh, me, I'm drunk. Is that you want to go, Eli? Like right? Or Panina? Like you can imagine that going a little differently, and you can imagine her friend saying, Hannah. You just need to give, you need to give her what she deserves. What does your heart look like when interacting with Panina or with Elkanah or or in your own suffering? Where do you go? When life is not fair, to whom do you trust? Who is it? Where do you turn? When, When you look at things, when your enemies win, are you cursing the Lord? When, when the, the 32-year-old that, that runs six miles a day that's in perfect shape dies of a heart attack, where, where does your vexation and anxiety turn? And you say, this can't be. Why would this be? When, the story, when your story unfolds in a way that you would not have written, what does your heart and your mind do? Do you sin in your suffering? Or maybe sometimes, or, or maybe other people, their default is to just sit in your suffering. You just sit there, and you might be saying, well, you keep saying that we do something, but I've just done nothing. But that is, that is a response. To do nothing is a response. Maybe you become numb. You embrace it as hopeless. You sit in it. You suffer you let your circumstances define you. You become depressed. The weight of the world is too much. You let despair be the beat of your heart and the salt of your tears. You have no response. And like, if you had it your way, you would just, just wither and die. Or, or maybe you can send your suffering somewhere, Right? And the best way to do that is to do what the Lord tells us to do. And it's when we have anxiety and toil and things beyond our ability to bear, we get to cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. He cares for us. So we get to do something with him. We get to send them to the Lord. Lord, Lord, if you would remember me, he doesn't forget, but it's a plea to reestablish watchfulness. Like, like when we pray, like I said, that, that God would be near. He is near. Uh, Joni Erickson Tada uh, did a bunch of stuff in her life 
Uh, I think it was a swimming accident. She dove into shallow water, paralyzed at 17, went on to write 40 books and be in the White House and the uh, all types of uh, spheres for uh, advocating for those with disabilities. She said, I, I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. I'm not saying you, I'm not saying 17-year-old Joni had that perspective. Or, or another perspective, I just finished uh, the autobiography from Ortland on Tim Keller. And, and at the very end, the, the book was over, and it was like I was listening to the acknowledgments, and sometimes I do that, and sometimes I don't. And, uh, and, and the first line in there like, was, was when he got diagnosed with cancer. He was in an interview, and they were asking him about it, and he said this, I'm not fighting my cancer. I'm fighting my sin. Like he, he sent his suffering somewhere to the only one that could handle it. But the one thing that won't happen is, is nothing. Like God can handle your cries. He can handle your frustration. He can handle your tears. He can handle your confusion Jesus came and, and, and cried with his friends when their brother and when, when, when his friend died. He shed real tears. Our God did that. He shed, shed real tears in real living rooms amidst real suffering. And there's no one better to turn to than the one who holds all things in his hand. Because God cares. We too get to care. And so we don't just get to, to say, well, Lord, that's you, but, but we get to actually engage. We get to use our gifts. We get to use our presence. We get to use our work. We get to use the, the, the redemptive arc of our own lives to, to offset suffering, to advance good whenever and however we can within our own limits. We get to act and engage knowing that we have one who acts and engage on our behalf in our suffering. And I would be a fool if I told you that I had all this figured out. But I would be a coward if I told you to turn anywhere other than to the Lord. To trust the Lord is a matter of faith but to not trust him is, is equally a matter of faith. It's just fleeting and shifting and vain faith. So where do you turn when, when you suffer? And, and the flip is true. Like, where do you turn when you succeed? It matters because, and this is the third point, because response reveals the heart. She suffered, she turned to God, and the priest gave her these promises, and he said, yeah, like, may the Lord do the things, and, and yeah, I hope it really works out for you. Sweetie, have a good day, right? She says, let, let your servant find favor, and she went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. What changed in her life? Nothing. Nothing changed. She, she left, and she was no longer sad. 
Maybe she was sad later that day, maybe tomorrow, maybe whatever. But in this moment, something changed, and the only thing that, that changed was her perspective. Her circumstances were just the same. Her countenance changed. Her circumstances did not. She had the same physical problems, same relational problems. She had to go home to like, oh, God. What changed was her perspective. And again, am I naive enough? Is the Holy Spirit naive enough to simply uh, deal with, with suffering in this way? To think that, that you, just, hey, you just need to change your perspective. No. But, but her devotion shows that how we suffer impacts how we suffer. We read in, in Hebrews chapter 1 and then in verse 3, faith is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. So it's, it's assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. And he goes on, he says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. She hoped in what was not, believing that it would be. There's this quote I read this week. It says, you can change your perspective, but first, you have to realize that your perception is not necessarily the absolute truth. What I love was that was from devout atheist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he said that, showing a big picture of the sun and how the earth is this big. I just find that really interesting that someone who's so dogmatic in his worldview that he can actually attain and, and find truth. You can change your perspective, but first you have to realize that your perception is not necessarily the absolute truth. So if, if only those who have all the answers knew that what they search for their entire lives is the author of all that they've committed to discover. See, faith is a change in perspective, but it's the gift of a changed perspective that gives faith. The question left from Hannah here is, is what does your response to suffering reveal about where you place your life Suffering reveals who you think is in control and, and the promise and the premise of who you think is in control of all things is what transforms our suffering for good. It's like when people pray that God would deliver them peace. God, would you just give me peace? And again, we say this a lot, but, but what, what are you actually praying for? Like the feeling of peace? Like for your heart rate to slow down? You know, count to 10 backwards if, if that's what you're trying to figure out. Are you praying that your circumstances would be obliterated and that you would live heaven on earth? I mean, probably. <laughs> that's what I'm, what I'm praying. But, but just think about what we're, God, would you just give me peace? God, we pray that you would give her peace. God, would you let your peace flow? What, what does that mean? What does that mean? Praying that God would give peace is really just believing truth that delivers peace. 
And all this is a setup, this one little chapter, to capture our hearts, to zoom way out and find all these realities, not only for this woman, not only for us and our suffering, but for an entire kingdom of God's people for all time. And the way this little you know, section for us closes out today, in verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. He slept with her. And the Lord remembered her, just as she had prayed. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, finally. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. See, see we suffer, and we turn, and we receive. That's not really up for debate. You suffer, you turn to something or from something, and, and you receive something. But we don't always receive the way and the what that we hope. Hannah does, thanks be to God. Can you imagine if I sat here and I just said, if you're more like Hannah, then you too will be delivered from your suffering here on earth. That would be a sham. She suffered for years, and it's possible that for each of us, we won't receive what we hope that we will. And not only for years, but as long as we live on this sin-stained earth. The Lord heard Hannah, and he acted, and he gave her the desires of her heart, not merely for her sake, but for the sake of all of his people for all time, and not merely for, for their sake, but for his glory in the kingdom of all who will be his for all time. God answered Hannah's prayer to pave a way for the true king who would save the world. In this intro, in this, uh, in this narrative, it turns out to be an origin story, not of Hannah, but of a prophet named Samuel. And once he comes, the story of God takes a huge shift, like a, a hard turn. Promises are fulfilled and future promises are brought into focus it's, it's through this beginning where this priest, Eli, promises the arrival of the prophet Samuel in the pages to follow. And Samuel will reveal the long-awaited king, not Saul, but David. And it is that king and that, that line of that king where the prophet, the priest, and the king, they converge into a true savior of God's people. And his name is Jesus. The back end of, his word, of Jesus' words in John 16, it says this, I've said these things to you, all that he said, that in me you may have peace. And then the next line is, in the world you will suffer. In this world you will have tribulation. But where does the peace come from? But take heart, I have overcome the world. You haven't. I haven't. All of the loved ones that we had that have lived and died, 
in their own right, in their own humanity? They have not. But this one, Jesus says, take heart in your suffering. I came to give you peace. I have overcome the world. And he did that not by blasting the world with, with laser beams, but by suffering as a servant. He overcame the world by taking the worst that it had to offer and by dying as punishment to receive justice from his father for the sins of Panina and for the sins of you, for the sins of me, and all who would find their rest in him. And it's in the death of Jesus that, that demonstrated his power to overcome when he came back to life. And it's that life that he promised to all who put their faith in his death as a substitute for our own death. And that is where each of our stories of suffering and the stories that we have of longing, our real world of candid moments, whether others watch on or if we endure alone and, and whether we get the final rose or if it's given to another, whether we get the house of our dreams or we don't have a home or whether we receive all the riches this world can give us or we have not a dime to our name, whether we're welcomed in as a family or we are voted off the island, all of our suffering is met with the bigger story of God's incredible, overcoming, sin-destroying, world-changing, future-securing work. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be good news. You are seen in your suffering. And Jesus suffered to bring an end to that suffering. The band can come on up. Each story of suffering is a window into the bigger story of God's work. We're going to respond to that today. And we can do that in lots of ways. You can sit right where you are. You can stand up and sing. Go to the prayer bench over there, kneel by yourself. You can pray with someone over there that would love to pray with you about your suffering, to celebrate with you. If you don't know who Jesus is, they would love to, to, to pray with you about that. And for those who are in Christ, trusted him to be forgiveness of sins and eternal life for them, the fullness of life here and now, man, we invite you to take communion, the Lord's Supper, and it's in the physical, it's, it's just a, a cracker and juice. But what it does for us, as often as we do, we're invited to take it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us, that he suffered on our behalf, that his body was broken, that his blood was spilled, that we might be able to overcome this world with him. And if you're not in Christ, it's not for you, right? We would love to talk to you about that. Jesus is for you. But the Bible's pretty serious about taking this in an unworthy manner. And so let's not do that today. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for stories like, like Hannah that you, you didn't have to include in the story of a king and, and prophets and priests and all these things. But thank you that you don't just give us the best parts, but you show us how you're at work 
even through the worst parts. Give thanks for your mercy to us. And, and would you remember us in our affliction today? In Jesus' name, amen.